as I share a little bit about my past and things that I went through, um, I'm going to give the Cliff Notes version abbreviated for time's sake. Uh, essentially, many of you may not know, many of you do know, that I used to be a drug dealer. And now for a lot of you, uh, many of you are like, wait, uh, what? Are you just going to breeze past that? And they're like, no, we'll give it some time. But I used to deal drugs. The three years uh, that I lived in Arkansas, my senior year of high school and the first two years of college, um, I sold drugs. Millions of dollars worth of drugs went through my hands. Um, I sold to sweet little old ladies. I sold to church members. I sold to uh, police officers and uh, legislative officials. I sold to the commoner. I sold to the elite. I sold to the poor. Um, millions of dollars worth of drugs. I used to drive, uh, in that time, I drove a Lexus LX470, a Beamer 535i, um, a Benz SL500, some really nice cars. Uh, there were some perks and benefits of what I was doing that day. Long story short, for time's sake, there did come a day in my life when I, I recognized and acknowledged that isn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I knew there was a call of God on me for ministry, which there's, yeah, those don't work together. And so finally... Uh, one day I had to decide, you know what? I no longer want to be a licensed pharmacy technician. <laughs> yes! Punchlines, right? Yeah. So some of you have heard that story a few months ago I told that. And some of you right now are like, seriously? <laughs> really? And you're sitting there going like, man, this dude, I had no idea. Just would have never guessed by the everything about him, that he was never in that life. Well, I wasn't. Now, I told you true things. I did handle millions of dollars worth of drugs that were prescribed to people. I did uh, tell you true things, that I did drive those three cars. They belonged to my boss. I did. <laughs> he let me drive them all the time. He, was, he loved me, and so he'd be like, Stephen, take the car out and get a milkshake. Yes, sir. Um, it was in Arkansas. That's why he sounded like that. And, uh, you know, so all of those things were true, but what I did was I said things that were true while I left out a lot of details of the truth so that you would think something that's not true. And as we have been into the book of Ephesians now in our second week, we talked a lot last week about Gnosticism, the... Uh, the ideology, the heresy that was prevalent in the day that Paul was addressing very much in this letter to the Ephesians, this letter that would have been cyclical and sent around throughout the community of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey now, that this was a prevalent idea, Gnosticism, a lot like what I just did. Gnosticism took some ideas that were true, acknowledging the deity of Jesus, um, acknowledging spiritual realities, acknowledging that there are, is at least a God who created, but mixing them with pagan ideologies, uh, mixing them with Greek philosophy and thought about matter, um, matter being evil and spirit being good. These were the heresies that were prevalent there in the first three centuries, along with the other heresies of Judaized Christianity. And so Paul is addressing those things. See, as we talked about Gnostic Christianity in the first century, and really the first three centuries, uh, it was building a worldview that was a marriage of portions of Christianity and portions of Greek, uh, Greek mythology. 
uh, that matter is bad, spirit is good, and there are levels of angelic spiritual realms. The highest realm being where the perfect, good, and supreme God, the God that they called the monad, that he lived, and the lowest realm, which would be our material earth, which was created by an evil God called the Demiurge, is what they would say, who they would then identify later as the God of the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh. They began to say that this evil demiurge God was Yahweh because if a God created this world that's so messed up, then that God must be evil. And so they began to make these heinous accusations against the Hebrew God, Yahweh. And so this has been going on for a long time. And since the world uh, is looking this way, then that has to be true. And now today, thousands of years later, Thousands of years after the historical church councils and the church creeds that were written, thousands of years after the Bible was canonized and what we today know as the 66 inspired books of Scripture that make up for us the authoritative word of God, thousands of years after that, many of these ideas that I just said sound really antiquated and ancient and even to us comical. Like as we say some of these things, it's kind of like, <laughs> that's silly that people believe that. That even after thousands of years, though, the global church, the body of Christ, looked at Gnosticism as this awful era of the past with thoughts of like, man, I'm glad that's not happening today. Glad we're not dealing with those ideologies today, because can you imagine if we were dealing with prevalent Gnosticism as well as all the other things that we have, like Mormonism and Orthodox, Orthodox Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism and secular humanism and agnosticism and atheism and ismisms? all the isms, notice the cunning deceit of the enemy. We know that Jesus said from John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If Jesus said that, which he did, and we also see in John chapter 8, in 32, a famous verse where he said, and you shall know the truth, you can say it, and the truth will set you free, right? And also in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, he's talking to this woman and he says, listen, the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. That's right. In spirit and and in truth, there was a time where Jesus was talking to uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day who didn't truly know God and have a heart to love him. Um, he said of them, your, fa your father is the father of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross. And he says to them, guys, listen, it's better for you that I leave because when I leave, the Father will send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which he said is the Spirit of truth, who will guide you into all truth. That's the buzzword right now. If you see me pause, you can say truth. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would guide you into all truth. In John 18... Jesus would stand before Pontius Pilate, before he's being crucified, the ruler of the region that he was in, with the authority to say guilty or not guilty, pardon him or send him to the cross. 
Pilate is trying to interrogate and find out, man, would this guy give me a way to not crucify him? He's talking to Jesus. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said what is now echoed thousands of years later in our day, in our age, in our society. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Is that not a theme that's present still? 2,000 years later, well, what is truth, though? I mean, isn't it relative? See, the primary goal of the enemy is to attack, suppress, undermine, or distort truth. This is the primary goal of Satan. Why? Because if Jesus declares that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, freedom comes from knowing the truth, receiving the truth, believing the truth, walking in the truth, then of course the enemy of God is going to do everything he can to undermine, distort the truth, to attack the truth. This is what he's been doing now for thousands of years. This is why Jesus said that stuff to the Pharisees, saying about the devil that it is out of his nature. He is deceptive. That's all he can do is lie. We see this immediately as we open scripture right away in Genesis in the garden with Adam and Eve when the serpent says what? Did God really say? Right? The first thing he does to Adam and Eve is try to undermine the clear command of God. When God said, don't eat or touch of that tree, the day you do, you will die. Satan comes in and says, mm, did he really say did he really? No. See, listen, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows that when you do, you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. God's deceiving you. He's undermining the truth. We see this in the temptation of Jesus in the New Testament. When Jesus goes away into the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting and praying and he's hungry and he's weak, Satan comes to him to tempt him, tempts him three times. The second time he tempts him, he tempts him by taking Scripture out of its context. He uses the Word of God to try and get Jesus to sin. He says, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, just throw yourself down from here because the angels are going to catch you because doesn't the Bible say, doesn't the Word of God say, isn't it written that he shall bear them up in their, or they shall bear him up in their hands lest he dash his foot against a stone. See, so you won't even, they won't let you even hit a stone. And thankfully, Jesus obviously also knew the word of God pretty well and says, it is also written, you shall not test the Lord your God. Jesus answered the deception, answered the lie with the truth of the word of God. We see this in the early church. We see this as Judaizers and Gnostics, these two dominant uh, heresies of the day of, of Scripture. Yeah, Jesus, but also circumcision, food laws, and tradition. Yeah, okay, we'll say that Jesus is the Messiah, but you still got to get circumcised. You still got to observe these ceremonial laws and traditions. That Jesus isn't enough to just have faith in him. 
The Gnostics on the other side would say, yeah, Jesus will acknowledge that he's a deity, that he's God, but he's a God, not the God. And also, he wasn't fully man, that when he was here, he was only divine, that it was only an image that he looked like a man. He wasn't truly a man. 1 John 4 tells us not to that if we don't acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh, that we are of the spirit of the Antichrist, and the truth's not in us. And so Jesus being fully God, fully man, very important truth, as there are implications for our forgiveness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Gnostics and Judaizers were, were distorting the truth or taking the truth and adding things to. We see this still today in the, the many heresies that sprang up over the centuries. If you study church history, if you're interested in studying church history, I would encourage. There's a lot to glean and learn from church history. There's a really great book uh, that's a pretty thick one called uh, Church History in Modern Language, I believe was what it's called. It's taken church history and put it in a way that we can understand it. Significantly less scholarly terminology there. So if you want to get into that. But as you start learning church history, you start seeing, man, heresy in this century to this century, a different heresy, 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 all these lies, deceptions that were trying to undermine the truth, attack the truth, challenge the gospel, we see this still today with the reclassifying of words like truth, where we muddy the waters with adjectives like your truth and my truth, that I'm going to live my truth and you live out your truth, that we classify these words in a way that distort what is truth. Truth doesn't need classification. Something is or isn't true. And you can believe all day long that your truth is that gravity does not exist. But when you jump off of a cliff, your truth will be proven false really fast. Right? And so if you convince yourself something is true and even genuinely believe it and go, this is my truth, that doesn't mean it is true truth. We see this still today with the redefining of words. Like last week, how I mentioned that Michael Gunger recently tweeted that Christ is a term for when the universe sees itself. That's a redefining of words. Taking Christ, which if you study the Greek, the term Christ simply and, and plainly means the Messiah, the anointed one. So when the authors of scripture wrote Jesus Christ, they understood they were writing Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. But today to say Christ is simply a term that, that means the universe is seeing itself. Redefining words to undermine truth, attack truth, distort truth, and therefore become untrue. We see this today in the rise of other world religions. Historically, Satan's primary goal is to get us to either never hear the truth, not believe the truth, or believe distortions of the truth that end up not being the truth at all, like me being a drug dealer. Not really true according to what you perceived and understood, right? Truth is, I was a pharmacy technician completely different frame of thought from what was being painted for you and what is actually fully true. There were centuries where Gnosticism was thought to have been a thing of the past, right? But with the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels in the 1940s, the Nag Hammadi Library, 
resurgence of this ancient heresy has reared its head again and began gaining traction today. We see this from the Da Vinci Code, and we see this in Gnosticism that is becoming prevalent and present again today. Here is a real quote, verbatim quote, from a pretty popular Gnostic teacher today in our day from just a couple of months ago. This is not 2,000 years old. This is not antiquated, this thing I'm about to read, okay? This is not truth. This is heresy. Okay, just making that clear. There is a hidden God that the church doesn't want you to know about. The church doesn't want you to know about this God because it is the real God. And the knowledge of this God will help you escape from this material realm. This is a hidden God, a secret God, and the truth of this hidden God is what the church fears the most. I'm going to teach you this knowledge and how you can use this knowledge to remember that the God throughout history is actually you. I love the looks on your faces right now and the gasps that I hear and even the chuckles that I hear because this was something that was just published a couple of months ago. And sadly, grievously, as I scrolled on down into the comments of this teacher, whatever you want to call him, there were over 900 comments of people saying only things I saw were things like, thank you so much. Thank you so much for opening our eyes. Thank you so much for teaching us the truth. Thank you so much. I've been feeling this way. Over 900 comments of people taking the heresy and going, go, 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 go. Now, if this were the only form of Gnosticism that was out there today, I honestly wouldn't be too concerned about our church family because most of you faces and, and, and grunts and moans acknowledge that you hear stuff like that and you're like, yeah, that's not true. And so if that was it, I wouldn't be very concerned about our church family and feel like this is something that we have to talk about that much. Uh, but the problem is that Gnosticism isn't only present in blatant heresies like that that are being spouted from this popular YouTuber. There are different variations of Gnosticism today, and some are leaking into the church, rotting the structure with what is now called progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is a, a wave now that's spreading throughout, especially America, this idea that Christianity needs to catch up with the times. Let's, let's, let's come on now, let's use a, hermen, a trajectory hermeneutic where we go, yeah, we know the Bible says this, but, but over time it really more so probably means stuff like this. I remember watching a video recently where a pastor, he was called, was debating with this guy over a, a current social issue. And uh, the one pastor of a progressive Christian church was sitting here saying so many reasons why we know the Bible not to be true. And I'm just going, why are you calling yourself a pastor? Why don't you call yourself a motivational speaker? Or a Gnostic theologian? Or why are you calling yourself a pastor? Why are you claiming Christianity? Just realize you're not in agreement with the truth of the Word of God, if that's the stance you take. And much like ancient Gnostic Christianity, 
in the early first century and a few centuries there. This progressive Christianity of today is being embraced by those who like aspects of the Orthodox Christianity, like, oh, I like the teachings of Jesus. I like the morals that he teaches. I like his service heart and attitude, but want to make it relevant to our day and less offensive to our culture. This is what they were doing then. They were saying, well, Greeks believe in this material evil world and this evil God and this good and perfect. So let's mix them together. Let's make it less offensive. Let's make it more palatable to our day. Yeah, we see what the Bible says there about sin, but we don't think that that's really what it means. Redefining of words. I mean, a loving God wouldn't actually let people go to hell, right? I mean, okay, maybe Hitler, maybe Bin Laden, you know, guys that are really, really, really bad, maybe they deserve to go to hell. But good people like us, no, a a loving God wouldn't, wouldn't let that happen. See, the gospel looks at all of us The problem with these ideologies is that the gospel is offensive by nature. The gospel offends the person who thinks they're good. The person who can look at the Bin Ladens and the Hitlers and the whomever else or whoever you think is really bad, we're really good at looking at them and going, I'm pretty good. (laughs) I'm not initiating the Holocaust. I didn't orchestrate 9-11. And, and of course, those are extremes, but I'm not murdering people. I'm not doing that stuff, the really bad stuff. We're really good at convincing ourselves that we're really good. The gospel is offensive because it says, no, you're not. No, you are not. We're really good at thinking that we are. That's why Romans chapter 3 quotes the Old Testament when Paul says, there's none good. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. This is what Paul is declaring, trying to help people see, hey, you think you're good when you're not. And this is what Gnosticism is bringing to us today to say, uh, sin, that's, that's a social construct. That does, that's not real. Sin, that, that was an ancient idea that was, that was made up to try and control people into a certain behavior. That's not real. And Paul saying in Romans 9, actually, or I'm sorry, not Romans 9, Romans 3 is saying, actually, all have sinned. We're all bad. (laughs) We all need, we all have a problem. Gnosticism is saying, no, 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 no. We all have a divine spark within us. That's popular terminology still today. That if we can simply look within ourselves, we'll find the goodness in ourselves, we'll have enlightenment, and we will find our identity, our meaning, our place in this world if we simply look internally. When all of Scripture is declaring, actually, internally, you are dead in sin until you are alive in Christ. It's a lot of what we talked about last week to the churches being being bombarded with these ideologies, with the churches who are facing these concepts of these spiritual mysteries that we can teach you the passwords to get to these new levels and you can look internally to this divine spark and the God who made this world is actually bad and there's a good God that we need to climb through these heavenly realms to get to and there's no such thing as sin. To people who are being bombarded with those ideas, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to reread really quickly what we read last week, starting in verse 3. Paul says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You don't need these mystical, mysterious spiritual passwords to get through the heavenly realms. We have everything we need in Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved, meaning in Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Wait a minute. To the people who are being told there's no trespasses, there's no sins, he's saying we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, which is the forgiveness of those trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, not some secret knowledge of Gnosticism. The mystery of God's will is revealed here according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as, the, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, there it is again, truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or the down payment, if you will, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul is saying, no, he resets this picture of the cosmos that's being pitched out by Greek thinkers and being pitched out by Gnostic Christians to say, no, the universe was not created by the monad or some perfect whatever God. Um, actually, before the foundation of the world, the true perfect and good God had a plan to reconcile all of his creation that would fall subject to sin. He had a plan to reconcile all things back to himself in Christ. Not in secret knowledge. Not in these mysteries. The mystery, the one mystery that was hidden is that Jesus Christ would one day redeem all creation back to the Father through his work on the cross. One other dynamic of this mystery is that the Gentiles are being brought back. Those who were not Jews are also being brought back and redeemed into the family of God. Colossians would go on to tell us the mystery that is revealed is Christ in us. Christ in us, not some divine good spark that already was there, but it's Jesus Christ in us that is the hope of glory. No, there is not some secret knowledge, Paul is basically saying here, that you can find from within and secret spiritual passwords to ascend the supposed tiered levels of angelic realms. The mystery that was hidden for the ages that has now been revealed was done so in Christ. The mystery which was to reunite all creation back to himself, both heaven and on earth, or both in heaven and on earth. Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So you don't need to try and find these blessings through spiritual mysticism. He goes on to essentially say, yes, 
actually sin does exist. That's why he redeemed us through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Paul is saying, we got trespasses. We have sin, but we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of these sins through his blood on the cross. See, not only did God create everything, not, not the monad or these Greek ideologies, not only did God create everything, he had a plan before he created everything that at the fulfillment of his plan, we would live to the praise of his glory, that we would step back and look at the genius, infinite wisdom of the knowledge of God, the plan of God, and how he brought his plan to pass, that we could just step back and go, whoa, God, you are wise. You are holy. You are awesome. You are magnificent. You are above and beyond anything else. And we would give praise to him and his glory. See, after Paul opens with this extremely rich, beautiful doxology of praise to God that is just rich in theology, teaching them truth, combating the error, and giving all this truth to these people, he then rolls into prayer for the church. As we continue reading in verse 15, he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith and the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on and he says, here's what I'm praying for you. He wants them to know what he's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, not those other fake made-up gods, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That God would give us the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said the spirit of truth that would guide you into all truth. He said, I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. To those who are hearing these ideas of these spiritual mysteries and these layers of heavenly angelic realms that you needed these secret knowledge passwords to ascend through to finally get to the perfect God, he's saying, nope, Jesus Christ has brought everything subject under his feet because of his obedient work on the cross and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. They rule, they reign, there is no other. He is preeminent and we give glory to him alone. I'm about to run or something. Paul is declaring these wonderful rich truths and then he shifts into praying for the church, recognizing I can share these things, I can teach these things, but if the Holy Spirit does not enlighten your understanding, 
You can't grasp them. You can't receive them. You can't walk out. And that's why Paul is saying he preaches this truth in the opening verses, all this theology about God. And he says, and here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. There are millions of people in this world who know more about the Bible than I do. There are scholars who have given their life to be experts on Scripture that have not had the Holy Spirit give them illumination, which is why they don't believe it, don't receive it, don't walk in it, don't let it transform their hearts into faith in Christ. And my prayer is the same exact thing I'm saying, amen, Paul. I'm praying for our church. I could get up here every day and I could use the oration skills that God has given me, the grace he's put on me to teach and to preach. And I could do everything I could to study and put together a sermon. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't open your eyes to see the truth and recognize your need for Jesus Christ, then you're not going to receive it. So I'm praying. Amen, Paul. God, would you give our church family the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes to see the truth? Because my words can't do it. You can bless my words and you can open eyes. But it's not my skill. It's not me. It's not me even putting together a, a sound doctrinal sermon, which I strive to do by the grace of God. Paul recognized the gospel isn't just something we know, it's something we experience by the power of God. Paul recognized this isn't something we just learn in our heads, that the Holy Spirit has to come in, give us illumination, and change our hearts. And we see this as we continue on in chapter 2, where Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice, he's not skirting around this whole idea, is sin real or not? No, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, saying there is spiritual realities, there is spiritual stuff going on. There is a good, true, perfect spiritual God. There is also a spiritual enemy, our adversary, Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is summarizing the problem, summarizing that, hey, not only are we going to say sin exists, every single person has sin in their nature. He says, by nature, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By, by what you were wired being born in sin, you cannot help but keep returning to that source of sin because it's coming out of who you are. Every single person born in this world was born with that sin nature. And he's saying right here, you're dead in it, dead in those trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he goes on to say that we carried out, like the rest of mankind, the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature these children of wrath. See, to say there's no such thing as sin and you don't need to repent of your sins would be the equivalent of what if a panel of cardiologists got together and they put out this statement to the world and they said, guess what, guys? 
Good news. Are you ready for this? It's going to be life-changing. It's going to be world-changing. Buckle up and get ready. Heart disease does not exist. We would go, wait, what? Are you serious? Heart disease, that's, that's a made-up social construct to get me to eat certain things and not eat other things? Wait, you're telling me heart disease doesn't exist and I don't need to exercise? <sighs> nice. You mean I can just eat cake all day long, all I want to, and I don't have to worry about what it might do to my heart? You mean to tell me that I don't need to sweat and exercise running? Who loves that? What's wrong with people? You don't have to. As Brett's back here, Mr. Triathlon Man. Yeah, he likes it. I don't understand, but praise God for that. Just recognizing these things that if we are just going to indulge our appetites of what our flesh wants, remember he said carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Why? Because our appetite is for sin, because we are born in sin, dead in sin, until you come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in and changes your heart and gives you an appetite for righteousness, holiness, for the goodness of God, an appetite for the word of God, an appetite for the presence of God, an appetite and hunger and longing for the goodness and faithfulness of God. But if we heard doctors today say there's no such thing as heart disease, we would, and we knew that it actually was something to be true, we would, to those doctors, say, wicked. You're evil. If you're sitting here telling people something that's not true, that then they start acting upon what they want to do, contrary to the truth that they know that would cause them to behave a different way, because we know these things about heart disease and all that, we live differently, hopefully. Statistics actually say we don't. But if they declared it was not a thing, it was just a social construct that we don't have to worry about it, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just do what you want. Eat how you want. Live how you want. You don't need to exercise unless you're weird like Brett and you just like triathlons. I love you, Brett. You don't need to do those things. We would say, that's evil. That's deceptive. It's destructive and damning to the human body. And that's exactly what people are doing today by saying, ah, sin's made up. That's not even real. Don't talk to me about sin. I don't know about that. This is the whole, uh, also we can see First John is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to this same issue. I'd encourage you to read First John with this understanding of Gnosticism as well. As we get into 1 John chapter 1, we see the Apostle John says, Hey, in God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if you say you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, you deceive yourself. And he goes to say, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Man, when you understand these Gnostic ideologies that were prevalent then and even today, those things sound different. That passage isn't just about confessing your sin when you fail. Should we? Yeah, absolutely. But it's also saying, hey, sin is the issue. 
Sin is the eternal problem. And if you buy into progressive Christianity that tells you, ah, well, yeah, I see what it, but, but it's more metaphorical. That it, that's not really what it means. You can just be true to yourself and who you are in your innermost being. And if you manifest who you are from your divine spark internally, then that's where you find your meaning. You don't need to worry about sin. Just be who you are. You're deceiving yourself, First John says. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, those who are there are dead in their trespasses and sins. Following the hungers of the body and the mind, living the way that they want to live. If you love sin, being told that sin is not even real, well, that's good news to you. If you, if you have an idea that you will stand before God one day and give an account for your life, well, it affects how you live. Now, it's not only the fear of judgment that we live under, but we live and recognize that the verse didn't stop there. Because he said this, children of wrath like the rest of mankind in verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That free gift and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that none of us can boast, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that we got to Ephesians chapter 2 this week, because this chapter is one of the best nutshell summaries of the gospel that exists. Dead in sin dead in the trespasses in which we once walked, following the desires of the body and the mind, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, satanic and demonic forces. That is what everyone is who is not in Christ, but God, rich, rich in mercy. We read from Lamentations, his mercies are new every morning. Rich in mercy because of the great Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, this free gift that you could never earn on your merit, that you could never be good enough to achieve, that you could never by your white knuckling and the sweat of your brow and your determination to be good, and I know I've been, but now I'm going to be better, you fail every time. You might do good when you're inspired from the Sunday morning and go, whoo I'm going to be good now. 
But unless you've been made alive in Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you will inevitably fade out of the inspiration back into what your heart wants. This is why Galatians chapter 5, the famous passage, the fruit of the Spirit, tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I grew up in Sunday school, sure. When it tells us that, we've taken this list that is meant to be evidence that the Holy Spirit has changed our heart, and we've turned it into a checklist of how we're supposed to behave. Oh, we better have love and joy and peace. No, that's saying if the Holy Spirit has changed you, you will have love for others in a way that you couldn't love before. You will have joy and a deep joy that cannot be shaken by circumstances you might be facing because your joy is anchored in Christ given by the Holy Spirit. You will have peace that's not shaken by COVID and by wars and rumors of wars. You won't have peace that's shaken by economy and unrest and all that because your peace is given through Christ and the Holy Spirit. You will have love, joy, peace, patience. People who are like, man, I'm not patient. That's something I struggle with. If the Holy Spirit's in you, he begins to work that in you. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We take that list and we go, this is how I need to behave. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Listen, if God's come in and changed your heart, that's what you look like. It's not meant to be a club where we go, act this way or else. It's meant to be a mirror where we go, does this look like me? Am I walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? If I'm not, if that's not coming out of God in me, then maybe I've deceived myself into believing or convinced myself that I know the Lord when maybe I don't. Because before that, Paul goes through a list of the works of the flesh, a laundry list that's real nasty that essentially capsulizes all the tendencies that we all have in some form or shape or some measure until we are in Christ, given the Holy Spirit, made new to where we then want love, joy, peace, patience. And we, we give that as an overflow of what God has done in us. See, the people who really know Jesus, not the people who know about Jesus, but the people who the Holy Spirit has come in and changed, you can just, there's something different. It's not just the head knowledge of how we're supposed to behave. It is the heart change that makes you go, man, that person is like always nice. That doesn't mean they're perfect. None of us are perfect. We'll be perfected, but we're not there yet as long as we're here on this life. But people who have been truly changed by the Holy Spirit, it's like, man, there's something. I don't understand with what they're going through, how they could still have joy. I don't understand why they could have peace with everything that's happening in our world. I don't understand how they can be so patient when that person is still doing this to them. I don't understand how they could have so much self-control in face of such strong temptations. How? The Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is why Gnosticism and progressive Christianity is spiritual cancer. Because it tells people to embrace what pulls them to destruction rather than acknowledging it as the problem, confessing it, repenting of it, and turning to Christ and having faith in Jesus. And it's through his blood we have redemption, forgiveness of our sins, the trespasses and all that that we used to do. So today, 
Don't let the lies of the enemy deceive you into embracing what is destructive for you. Let the word of God renew your mind and confront ideas that either have come or will come your way. And we need to be equipped with the word of God so that we can stand firm in the truth and say, no, that's not what the word of God teaches. And I believe in the word of God as authority. And so I'm going to live in light of that. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it is so important to you that we know truth. I ask today if there's anyone who is walking in darkness, that you would give them illumination, that you would open their eyes, Holy Spirit, that you would help them see their need for Jesus Christ, not only their need, but the infinite value and worth of knowing Jesus Christ, that he is the treasure in the field, he is the pearl of great price, that there's nothing in this world, nothing in this life that is worth more than knowing you, Jesus. I ask that you would do what my words cannot do. I pray in agreement with Paul that you would give our church family, that you would give people online, that you would give people who hear this later, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that we may know the hope of our calling in Jesus Christ. What is the riches of the inheritance that we have coming when we are with you in eternity, that we may know the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, working to change our hearts and to live like you and love you and serve you, delighting to do so in our heart. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do the work that I can't do. Save souls today, Lord, I ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.